Hey ho and welcome to Null Pointers with your hosts, Mark, Gerald, and Stephen. We finally got the Anne Stephen. Yes. And today, we're not talking about the Anne Stephen, unfortunately. We might do that another time, though. But today, we'll be talking about cross-platform applications. But before we talk about this very interesting topic, which I know you two have got so much to talk about, I'll just lean back, enjoy my tea. Have you two seen the movie The Social Dilemma on Netflix? Oh, yes, Mark, I did. I did. I mean, now life will never be the same. It's it's horrible. Um, Isn't no, it? Well, yeah, kind of. I mean, I think I feel it's mostly like useful for the non-technical people because at, at least at some level, I realized all this was happening. Although I, I didn't really realize that it, it was to that extent that they... Um, and they being like Facebook and, and others are basically starting wars um, at this point. And not not just themselves because they, they think it's funny, but um, just because they've created a platform where it's very easy to influence other people and, you know, just feed them with information that you want them to believe. Yeah, I guess that's why they call them influencers, all those magic people making money off these platforms but yeah it's i saw it as well and i have to admit that i've actually taken some of the steps to get my phone a bit cleaner i guess so i disabled pretty much all the notifications except for the ones that are coming from apps that actually matter to me and i but that's what you think you think those apps matter but they don't man well really free yourself with a pregnant wife <laughs> in the background, I might need some notifications in my life um, because else I might be in trouble. But yeah, so those are still on. And I actually uninstalled some of the social apps that I was basically browsing mindlessly for no apparent reason. So yeah, I don't think my data is that interesting that I'm just mindlessly scrolling through them. But it's the thought that counts, right? I did that a while ago as well, uh, at least for like Facebook, where I was like, you know, I still have it and I still have it mostly for, I'm, I'm just, I'll, I'll be honest, for shameless promotion because I have a couple of um, groups where I'm in where I just like to share whenever I created a new piece of content. Um, so, you know, I just like to get it out there and, and help people with that. And I actually go into the questions that are in the comments. So it's not just like um, one way me um, going out and saying like, look, here's something awesome I created again. But um, so that's basically the only thing why I'm keeping that account. But other than that, yeah, I found myself whenever I had a spare few minutes scrolling mindlessly, like you say, you know, it, it didn't really serve me any purpose. Um, so I decided, you know, I'll just delete that one, at least the app from my phone, so they can't um, start sending me notifications to uh, seduce me to come back. Um, so, you know, I just check it now whenever I feel like it, which is far, far less than whenever it was on my phone and I got a notification and opened it just to, to check these things. Um, I probably can do more, like like remove even more things and just check them whenever I feel like it instead of getting incentivized to do things um, whenever they wanted to. Um, so, but if you haven't seen it, like we're talking about a documentary that is on Netflix where they explain like, how the uh, social media actually work um, and how dangerous it, it could be. 
Um, so in how you are like influenced and, and, um, you know, you, you get certain, um, things pushed to you and well, I don't think brainwashed is even too heavy of a term for this. On the other hand, there is so a couple of people who are already like adding some nuance to it. Like, um, you know, maybe this was a little bit too black and white. Maybe there there is a little bit of uh, gray in between as well. I'll find the link and I'll put it in the show notes uh, for you to read and you can decide yourself. But uh, like, I, like I started talking about this, uh, I think it's good for non-technical people because it's good to realize that it's not just a platform that is there to help you. Um, and to to help you share the things. But uh, one of the things that really stuck with me is that they said at some point, like, you know, um, you have the famous saying, like, uh, whenever, whenever something is free, then you are the product. But they they took it a step further, like, you know, you are not the user. Um, it's, it's the advertisers. They are the users. So uh, the Facebooks and the other social media are, you know, making it as easy for the advertisers as possible to reach certain people. And, and yeah, if they happen to, uh, make the people trying to share things uh, a little bit happier as well in the in the process, then that's good. But that's not their primary goal. Uh, so that was kind of like, uh, I think that will be an eye-opener for like less tech-savvy people. Uh, Mark, did you see it? What did you think? Yeah, I watched it. And uh, I must say it's it's quite well done. Um, I would definitely recommend uh, the listeners to, to watch it if you got a Netflix subscription and if you haven't seen it yet. And yeah, I think it, it combines quite a few things. Uh, I think it oversimplifies maybe a bit on the influential side. Uh, they, they go on a tangent there that social media might be the, the reason why we see such uh, more extremists uh, in, in, in the political space. Uh, I don't know if that's really true, but um, yeah, basically what you can see is, and, and as you said, Gerald, it's also made quite nicely for people that are not really into tech, uh, how these social networks are built up, how they try to have you consume as much time as possible uh, on those social networks so they can show you ads or stuff that you can buy over them so they earn money. And um, yeah, it's, it's made quite nicely. It's a, it's a great story that how they tell it. And uh, yeah, it was very intriguing to watch. And also, as you said, Gerald, uh, I think, oh, Stephen, uh, it it makes you a bit more mindful about how you use your your apps in your daily life. Um, so I, before the the movie came out, I started reading a book. I think it was actually even recommended to to you, Gerald, by David Ortino. It's uh, uh, indistractable, and uh, there the author goes into how these apps are often based on psychological processes of nudging so they try to nudge you into a certain direction and you can use that for positive stuff uh, like uh, investing in your retirement and stuff like that but you can also use it for tricking you into using an app uh, which uh, is highlighted in this movie and in that book uh, which i be sure to link in the show notes yeah he the author basically goes into, yeah, these apps are built for that. So be sure to disable notifications, maybe even delete them entirely. And yeah, just maybe reserve a block in your calendar of time where you will then go and read through your social media feeds uh, and stuff like that. And the same goes for email. And uh, one really extreme part in there was actually even recommending uh, limiting your Slack or Teams time when you actually interact with the group. So yeah, I, I haven't implemented that yet, but definitely interesting. So has any one of you ever... I assume we all have or had Facebook at some point. I closed mine off years ago, I think. But right before I did that, I hit the download all my info button. Has everyone or anyone actually ever done that? The amount of stuff that they have on you is mental. Yeah, I think I did that at some point. And I wasn't too shocked, actually. 
maybe I did the wrong button and I just got something else. But I guess it varies on on interacting you are, I guess, also. But there there were a few like characteristics that they've added to me and my profile that I never actually gave them. They they kind of made those up out of thin air, I guess. But they were actually quite striking. <laughs> that's the yeah, and that's that's the interesting thing, right? Like. That's the same thing with uh, TikTok now. That's that's very popular, and I have it installed. Um, so I I threw off Facebook and I, I got the next one. Uh, but I don't have an account. But still, they're so very good at um, you know just profiling you basically because they they can see how long you're looking at something. Maybe probably I don't know. Uh, probably if you click through to someone's profile, so you find that person interesting. Apparently, um, so the, it it was I don't know if I told this story was that on the, I think so on this on this podcast as well like I went out to like the, the do-it-yourself store and uh, I got home opened TikTok and there he was the person behind the counter that helped me so probably because of the the GPS coordinates uh, at some point uh, we were linked together like hey you should probably be interested in each other so you know it's scary and interesting at the same time but yeah they pro- I think they I read somewhere that TikTok basically whenever you open the app they have like I don't know it was either 12 or 20 pages of data um, they they gather on you like just by starting the apps it's amazing yeah and i think the latest ios also unmasked quite a few apps with their clipboard mm-hmm. reading behavior oh, yeah. they all needed obviously for performance improvements and all that good stuff but yeah pretty much every app is reading your clipboard for some reason and not just the clipboard but i think also like the bluetooth uh, usage that some apps had to which which you can also use to locate so like with bluetooth low energy you could uh, you could theoretically i mean that's how all these COVID tracing apps work so they they track uh, the bluetooth signals uh, nearby and if you've got a beacon that uh, sends off you can then see how close they are blah 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 but that could be how they detected that you were actually standing next to that guy, Gerald, just by having Bluetooth on. The the app said, hey, I'm using so much. And then you go like, oh, yeah, fun. Next time he opens it up, I'll suggest him as a friend. And, uh, yeah, it's I think it's stuff straight out of spy novels sometimes, how these things work. And it's a bit uncanny how they do it. But let's imagine we would want to make one of these apps, you know, to dominate the world, to influence people to buy. I don't know. That's why I haven't got an app like this. But <laughs> obviously, obviously, we want to have this thing on every platform because it would be ingenious, especially with Steven's design. Segway over to cross-platform. So basically, the definition of cross-platform is having an app that runs everywhere. And by everywhere, we mean on multiple operating systems. So that could be Windows, macOS, Linux, Android, iOS, I don't know if there are some others, but there probably are. And uh, yeah, uh, it also is always interesting to know on what kind of platform you want to run on. So that might be something you want to keep in the back of your head when choosing uh, the approaches uh, to go through. And there are also different device types that you could be running on there, like mobile, desktop, your smart TV. It could be um, a, a big panel somewhere in an industrial complex. Uh, whatever your needs are, but those are all considerations you have to do when you talk about or when you think about uh, cross-platform approaches. And I know my good friend, Stephen, he's a big fan of cross-platform. So Stephen, what if I'm building now this next billion dollar app, what approach should I be taking? What are my options? I am definitely a fan of cross-platform. I was hoping you were too, actually. You make it sound like you're not, Mark. I'm, the, I'm big. I'm huge here. I'm just uh, I'm just trying to build up some, I don't know what. But no, I'm, I'm yes. a big fan here. But please continue, Steve. You are definitely 
a big fan. Um, so I got a T-shirt. Oh, thank you. I got a T-shirt that proves it. You know, just thank saying. You. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Maybe even a mug. So what? I'll what? Shut up now. Yeah, please do. So what? What I? What approaches do you have? Well, obviously the most simple one, if you've ever developed a website, is to make it on the web. Um, so every device that you mentioned and every platform that you mentioned pretty much has a browser on it or an internet connection. So if you build something on the web um, that scales to the dimensions that you need, that would be obviously the first approach. Depending on your needs, that could be pretty good. Um, if you don't necessarily need access to device specifics like cameras or GPS sensors, that kind of stuff. And even those you can you can do much more of that on the web now these days. But that could be a, a very straightforward approach, I guess, to start with. And if you need more to actually have those device sensors um, and access them, you could go obviously full native. Downside to that is that you need to know all these platforms by heart, um, know all the coding languages that they use, which are most likely going to be different. So you need different programming experience per platform. And I guess the the way that we all are, I guess, known for or use much in our daily lives is the, the native hybrid kind of thing. So it's an abstraction layer on top of native, which Xamarin does or Flutter or platforms like that, basically. And that's my go-to, obviously, because that's what I've been doing for the last six or seven years, if not more. But yeah, the, those are pretty much my three ways to get started and the the upside to that last one is that they share one common code base so on on xamarin side you have .NET framework and on the flutter side you have everything that you build you build in dart i believe it's it's one abstraction layer on top of that native layer and you can still drill down into that so you can still write your your objective c or swift if you really want to but it's not the main bulk of stuff that you write yeah so um there is indeed a, a lot of ways to do this basically so uh there's a couple of interesting things that you're saying like uh, flutter and xamarin are kind of comparable so i'm 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 not touching this discussion uh, i mean i think we've stated this before everyone should do whatever makes you happy um i mean i'm fine with anyone doing anything um but you know, there's there's a bit of a difference. Well, Xamarin uh, traditional is is just the bindings for the cross-platform APIs, right? So they will just allow you to write C sharp code, but that will still be compiled to the native things and uh, do it, its thing that way. Then you have Xamarin Forms, which is more comparable to Flutter, I think, because it's more like on the UI side of things. With the big difference that Xamarin Forms, the thought behind that is to translate all the um, abstractions, so the entry or the label or whatever to the native counterparts and how it should look on that platform. While Flutter um, is taking the approach of drawing everything and everything. Um, so, you know, they just have this, this drawing cycle always with uh, Skia Sharp. So, um, you know, it, it's still native, but not really, if you know what I mean. And, you know, in, in Xamarin Forms, we also see that a little bit shifting for a while now, um, where you have like the composed uh, of the or the composite uh, controls, um, where you just create controls from like uh, build in, in different XAML parts, or you can do it in C-sharp, of course. Um, so, you know, also there is uh, different paradigms as well. So it's, it's 
it's a rabbit hole that you can easily find yourself lost in uh, choosing between all the things. Absolutely. There, there are a ton of options. We're all based in the, in the Xamarin camp, and, and I know we could be now the Xamarin fanboys and just go on and, and hammer out how, how great we think that this approach is and that it obviously has got all the upsides. But unfortunately, um, that, that might not be 100% true. I mean, all the approaches they have there... Uh, reasons why they're there like uh, I think the the web approach is is probably one of the most accessible ones I mean basically what you have to be able to do is uh, write a responsive web app that you can then run on on a, on a browser or wherever and, and you have it and there you go and then if you need some more uh, app logic you you can use uh, one of the spa uh, single page application frameworks your angular your react your view uh, js or, or whatever the kits are using today and uh yeah you you can you can write really complex applications with that there are some downsides with going with the web approach and that is uh so performance can be an issue on some phones because javascript is not compiled it's generally interpreted so you you might see something there you only have got one thread so if you're running something really compute intensive you might run into an issue there on the client and there's also the thing like I know that there's a standardization going on in the web. You got the W3C, like the original maintainer of the web, and then you got the the WHATWG, the Web Hypertext Application Technology Working Group. What? I'm not reading off my notes here. <laughs> yeah, but that is like that that group is like the the standard which defines what goes into the browsers, and that's where the difference sometimes comes in. So you can you can write web apps that run uh, offline. Uh, your progressive web apps, um, but that will be really true on Chrome. So if you've got an Android phone only, you can do a lot more with web, but on iOS, it starts to fall apart. And yeah, so so web can be a bit uh, more complicated once you go into the native space. And I think that's where the hybrid approach comes in. So if you're a really great web developer and you want to go kind of uh, into the native world, you can use the hybrid approach, which is basically you control your own browser and you can then hook into some native features. And then there are the native approaches. And Steve mentioned it before. I, I always like to call this like the native silo approach. Like when you use iOS, you go with Swift, Objective-C, and for Android, you use Kotlin or Java. And the problem there is you, you got no way to share your code. The only way you could share your code is uh, by project management, by having teams that look that all the... Uh, libraries and all the features are synced up and i know of a couple of apps that are built this way and you can just see that there are always some slight differences in there uh, where the team or where the developer thought i'll do something really great here but he forgot to do it or the other person forgot to do it in the other thing and then it's not there uh, which is interesting and then you got the native cross-platform approach uh, which is yeah the Zarin's and alls uh, where, you, where also if you're a great javascript developer and you just want to build a native app there are options there for you you can use i think native script is a is a tool uh, where you can write your cross-platform apps with javascript or typescript if you prefer that but but yeah you you mentioned a few of the of the positive things when when we're looking at uh, this native cross-platform approach and what I really like there is that you get to share a lot of your code and it still runs natively. Yeah, so you know, it, it all comes down basically to, I think not so much like the technical things basically because everyone is probably convinced that their technology stack is the right one, right? Because that's why you're using it and it's awesome. So that's good for you. Uh, but I think it all comes down to what 
is the company you're working at? What is the technology that they're comfortable with? What is the investment that they want to make? Um, I mean, I have been working with Microsoft technologies basically all my life, uh, mostly. Sure, I've looked at other things and I've picked up a few things like, hey, they do that pretty nicely. Um, So, you know, it's always good to look over the fence. But um, then from there, it's, it's easy to get into companies that do Microsoft stuff. And whenever you do Microsoft stuff, you get into um examine from there basically so but you know if you work at um i don't know some kind of web developer thing and you know the, the web development is i think a lot more accessible for a lot of people it's like the javascript is something that's easy to get into so a lot of people do that and um because of that it's much more popular there is uh, a lot of documentation there's a lot of support there's a lot of stack overflow things um so you know from that perspective it's very easy to get into like the react native kind of stuff maybe um, which is fine as well. You know, if that's what you know, if that is what your company is doing. I mean, you can have a company that that writes JavaScript, uh, JavaScript all day and you suddenly start building an app on your own with C-sharp Xamarin or do it in Flutter or whatever, because that's what you know. And then you decide to leave, then your company has a problem, right? Because yeah, they suddenly have this app that no one knows about. No one knows how to use it. Um, so it for the the time to come for some time to come at least they will not know how to how to deal with that and how to support it so um, it, it all comes down to your requirements and investments and uh, you know at least whenever you're doing like uh, this in an, in an enterprise environment that's something to to take into account maybe even more than like what is technically possible because i think at the end of the day um, all the um, app making platforms frameworks can do the same thing I think you touched on a couple of good points there, Gerald. One thing is absolutely sure. I mean, if you if you're starting out and you're trying to figure out, hey man, what should I take? You know, like what what development route should I take down? I think it's always great to to scratch your own itch. Like uh, take take a problem that you want to solve and choose the technology that you're already familiar with. Uh, on the other side, if you are a, a, a company that is uh, looking at a new application or, or a new uh, business venture or, or some or new project that you want to implement, I think the the four approaches that we just named, I mean, they all have their ups and downs. So uh, it could be that you, you want to have something that has got maximum reach. You want to reach as many users as possible you don't want to hassle a lot around with uh, IT installments and stuff like that. And then the web might be really great. I mean, uh, I've got my blog on the web and I never thought about writing uh, my blog uh, on a mobile app, just mainly because if I put it onto the web, it's probably more people will find the content and you got different requirements sometimes for your apps where you want to interact with some hardware or you require some Bluetooth interfacing, or you want to have notifications, or you want to uh, synchronize a ton of data uh, offline and stuff like that. And then maybe the the native approach uh, will be more feasible. And that could then be that you say, okay, I already got a bunch of Swift developers in-house, so and we only wanted to target iOS, so I'll, I'll use the native silo approach because that's what we can do. And uh, as you said, if you've got a house full of C-sharp developers or F-sharp developers, you might think, oh, well, we got .NET developers. How about some Xamarin or soon-to-be Maui? And uh, yeah, 
uh, I think those are, are always some bits that you have to keep in the back of the mind. And I think what always trumps out in the end is, is your business requirements. Because in the end, if you need to build a mobile app, you probably don't want to go down the web route. But if you need to build a mobile app, it doesn't mean that you cannot use the knowledge that you have with JavaScript and stuff like that to then choose a framework which will support your developers uh, with, the, with the languages and libraries and tools that they know. I think the UI part is also the, the part that influences that choice. Like if you go the, down the native route, you're going to probably get a lot of controls that look native. Um, whereas what Gerald already said about, for example, Flutter, they draw it all themselves. And I think they actually draw native controls themselves but these days if you if you look at least on on the project that i'm working on at the moment the customer wants the same look and feel across all platforms so something like a web or or a a shared platform like xamarin that basically gives you that out of the box whereas other platforms would require you to to write that multiple times so if you were to build it on ios and on android separately you'd have to implement that ui multiple times but definitely is a trend of the last few years i think it's not necessarily something that that was around back when all of these technologies kind of got their start because back then it was really make ios look like ios and make android look like android but designers have taken over i think um now it all needs to look the same oh no the designer dilemma yes they're coming for us <laughs> <laughs> i i remember i remember a time when uh, android had to look like ios that was painful to do oh boy i i actually now that you mention it it's it's a repressed memory somewhere in the back of my i don't know what part of my brain keeps those but yeah i i definitely remember a design firm that built an android app that looked exactly like ios and it was a pain in the behind to implement because back then bottom tabs on ios i'm talking like five or six years ago bottom tabs on ios was the norm but on android they weren't there it was pretty much impossible to get them there like there was one library maybe that made a valiant attempt at it but it wasn't to be in my opinion but yeah that that was definitely not the the hottest time in design at least for mobile yeah now what you see happening again if we go back to like uh, i think you already mentioned this like if we go back to the enterprise things uh, and to be honest i don't have that much experience like with the default well the default app so let's just say the bigger apps like the Twitter and whatever, but I think the UIs of all of those um, are pretty much the same now uh, nowadays on iOS and Android, maybe other platforms that we are not aware of. So, and I know, Stephen, that we worked on a project where the client also just said like, you know, it has to look the same on, on both platforms and they don't really care that something is native or not or how it comes to be, but uh, it just has to look and work the same so they can create their manuals just one time and whatever. So, you know, that's, that's something thing to take in consideration as well yeah and then you have you know a lot of other things as well if we go back to the web things again i mean if you say web there's a couple of different routes to go as well like you can do the react native thing where you're still building your native app but then from javascript or you can go for the pwa the progressive web app that you mentioned mark uh, which is basically like you go to the 
twitter.com website and you can install that as an app air quotes they are gaining more and more functionality as well so depending on which phone and which browser etc you're running on that will also give you the ability to send push notifications or even access the camera and that kind of things or you can just you know have a responsive responsive website that uh, you load through the browser or maybe you will create a native app that just loads your responsive web app so there's a lot of different routes again that you can do. I feel that whenever you really want to get that native look and feel web might not always be the best choice, at least not whenever you're loading your CSS from external sources and whatever, because also a big part of, we've talked about that in a previous episode, a big part of like the cross-platform development, like on the mobile devices, um, let's just say it like that, is like the connectivity, right? So you don't have terrific internet everywhere all the time. And whenever you're dependent on loading your CSS from an external server and your internet is not there, that's going to be something that is hard to do so your app might suddenly look not that nice anymore so again that's also things that you want to take into consideration making choices on the the technology that you want to use here that's true and i think uh, another thing that you always have to keep in the back of your head is when you hear advice from someone like oh this technology xyz is bad you know i tried that and that didn't work it's always good to ask them when, when did you use it because if he used it two years ago stuff changes i mean the same goes for for web on on desktop i mean a couple of years ago you couldn't do a lot with a website on a mobile device now you can access the camera you can access the the geo position and 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 there are many sensors that you can actually access directly from a website without having to install it via the app store and there are other features that are a bit more complicated and by complicated i mean you have to know in which browser am i running or which browser version am i running on which operating system are running and that's where stuff gets a bit hairy for me so if you want to be like there on the safe side you might not want to take the web approach like Gerald mentioned before and that's why I personally really like a approach like uh, Xamarin Forms gives us because on one side I can write all of my business logic in .NET and use a, a format like .NET standard which allows me to take my C sharp or .NET code and just use it on different runtimes and different operating systems. And with WebAssembly, we could even use it in a browser. And on the on and in the future, this will be .NET five and, and whatever, which will automatically support this. And I I can even go a step further and and share my entire UI uh, on those platforms. But given a feature that does not conform to the Xamarin Forms approach, like I do not have it in the UI library, I need to write my special custom 3D rendered butter control. I can do that. I can drop back. I can go with Xamarin iOS or Xamarin Android or UWP, even in Windows. You can then actually write that control natively pull it back into the into the Xamarin Forms framework and, and I can do that. And I think that's, in my opinion, what makes uh, an approach like Xamarin Forms so powerful that I can still use a lot of the native stuff, but a lot of the common stuff has been abstracted so that I can write something one time and it will run on multiple platforms. So you mentioned uh, UWP, which is interesting. So while talking about like the cross-platform stuff, I notice about myself that I'm still thinking like, you know, uh, Android, iOS, mostly UWP a little bit, but that's also like an interesting other thing, right? Like, okay, you can write cross-platform, but cross-platform is more than mobile devices, right? I mean, mobile devices is big. That's not going to weigh, that's not going to go away anytime soon. But it's, it's if you want to go true cross-platform, if you look at like the platforms that Xamarin Forms is supporting, you have iOS, Android, 
right? You have UWP, you have macOS, you have WPF, uh, GTK, so you can run it also on Linux, Tizen, so you can run it on your TV or your Samsung watch stuff. I mean, you can do all that from a single code base. The question that you might want to ask yourself is, is that also something that you actually want to do? Because especially whenever you're going to cross over from like the tiny devices to like big widescreen um, things, HD, 4K that we're looking at in our studio here right now is, you know, the UI is completely different whenever you write one app for the one thing and one for the other. So it's going to be hard to reuse the UI for that like one-on-one. You might want to even consider, I guess, that you just detect what device or what platform you're running on and swap out the views entirely, which is technically totally possible. But you know, so that's that's again something that you want to take into consideration. Is that anything that you have ever done, like an app that has to work on the mobile device, but also on desktop things? So that is something actually, sorry to interrupt you before you even began. So that's actually, I think, one of the advantages that web maybe might have over like the native development, right? Because the responsive web apps, they are pretty good at um, hiding and showing stuff whenever you make the screen smaller or bigger. Yeah, the the thing that we built, I think we built it for UWP, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, I think you built on that as well, Gerald. Yep. which was running on tablets but in theory it could also run on a at the time i think windows 8 machine with yeah i think it was not even uwp i think it was windows windows 8 so it was just windows 8 yeah yeah we're not yeah well yeah something along those lines um <laughs> but that that's my only experience with that at least when it comes to an actual app like Gerald said, the web is obviously very suited for this. But other than that, I don't really have any experience on that end. Mark? I think it's also years back. I think it was around the time of Windows 8 when I developed an app, which was a bit more responsive so you could run it on a big TV screen, but also like on a small tablet-like device. And what you generally, you always have like these boundaries when you write responsive apps, right? So you got like your mobile device, and then you got your... Are phablets sort of thing? I guess they are. And then you got like your phablet devices, and then you got like your tablets, and then you got your PCs, and then you got your huge ginormous screens. And the one in our studio is really gorgeous, but I'm digressing here. So what I'm trying to say is like usually you end up with different kind of layouts and designs for to adopt to those screens. And uh, as Steven mentioned, in HTML, this is can do this quite nicely, different layouts. And uh, you can also do in Xarin Forms, you get also some support for this to make it more responsive. But oftentimes I must say the the apps that we do are made for one device form factor because they have a certain purpose or a certain persona that you have in mind while developing it and so no i don't get to do it uh, really often but if you do it i think it's always good to just keep in mind like just don't scale up your mobile app until it fits into the tablet i mean usually your mobile app will do that it will just scale up and then you'll just have a ton of wasted space yeah that's exactly what i mean and it's funny that you actually brought up the uh windows 8 kind of thing Stephen, because because of two reasons actually because i think we rewrote that thing to work on like smaller devices after that 
because they didn't want to carry around like the big tablet things. Uh, I think that wrote it for Android actually. Yeah, for Android, right? Yeah. And the the other thing is like you can also see with Windows 8 specifically that Microsoft was a bit struggling with how they should position like the mobile devices and the desktop PCs as well, right? Because they try to unite that or maybe make Windows 8 more like a big mobile device kind of thing with all the tiles and things. And I think they they got a lot of resistance on that and uh, it quickly changed back to what it is now in Windows 10. So uh, it's funny that uh, you, you can see them struggling with kind of like the same questions here as well. If we're really down in memory lane, I think it's also like really interesting to see how all these different operating systems implement stuff. I remember the lifetimes where you could like have your status blinking up and some people now are saying with the latest iOS update, I finally got my life tiles back again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think it's always interesting how certain design concepts, yeah, you first have to bring them out into life. People have to use it. You get more experience. You can refine it or you have to throw stuff away like some puppets off the start menu from Windows 8. But that's, I think that's just uh, how this life experience uh, works. Another thing that's walking you a bit back, I know you two are, are really avid open source contributors as I always get reminded on this podcast. <laughs> I think another nice thing is uh, when you cross platform and you're working with an established platform, as, as some of them that we've mentioned here, you also get to use many great libraries that you, you can learn them once and you can reuse them all the time. Like uh, I think the most favorite library that you can use on literally any platform is JSON.net. So that's the .NET NuGet library, which allows you to serialize and deserialize your objects into JSON. And there are also other libraries that go one step further so not only you got libraries for your business logic but you also got some for your ui and i know steven he really doesn't like it when we name him out here on the podcast but i mean one library that's out there for zero is like the pancake view which you should make and you should probably also make some pancakes because they're really nice and you know it mm, you want to make you. some now another one is uh, the Zarin community toolkit which we also have spoken on and i think what those libraries can do they they really enable you to write not only shared code i mean we all did that with java years back when it was all gray on gray and looking a bit strange but now you can actually even write beautiful apps that are cross-platform in the end. Those are now separate libraries that are going to live and, you know, Xamarin Forms is going to evolve into .NET MAUI. And it's funny that you should mention the um, JSON.NET because I think that's the like the single most popular library on NuGet like at all. Ever. Since forever. That is actually now part of, is it .NET 5? Or I think already before that, I think it's part of .NET right now. Um, so, you know, the library basically doesn't have any existence rights anymore. But yeah, and the same will, will of course, be true for, um, well, Xamarin Forms basically and Xamarin. That will just be things that are in the, the .NET namespace. So it will just be .NET and .NET will be the thing that is going to be cross-platform and can be shared throughout all the things. And then it's up to you what you do with all that power. Yeah, choose your own poison. And I think that wraps up our episode on cross-platform applications. We've been your hosts, Mark Alibone, Gerald Fleisch, and Stephen Davison. Yes, we got him again. We got him again. Woo-hoo. What is your favorite cross-platform framework? Did we miss one? Do you have your own stories with one of them? Let us know on Twitter at nullpointers.io. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. Stay safe. And until next week on Nullpointers. Pointers.